This is the Visible Voices podcast, hosted and created by Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Hi, audience. That's me. I launched this podcast during the acute phase of the pandemic. I speak with guests on the topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. I wish to amplify voices, both known and unknown, with the goal of challenging our thinking, triggering interesting conversations, and broadening our perspective. Today's guest is Paula Scher. Paula is one of the most acclaimed graphic designers in the world. She's been a principal in the New York office of the international design consultancy Pentagram since 1991, where she has designed identity systems, environmental graphics, packaging, and publications for a wide range of clients. That includes, and is not limited to, the Public Theater, the Museum of Modern Art, the High Line, the Metropolitan Opera, Tiffany & Company, Citibank, and Microsoft. Cher has been the recipient of hundreds of industry honors, including the National Design Award and the American Institute of Graphic Arts Medal. She is an established artist exhibiting worldwide, and her designs are in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, the Library of Congress, the V&A, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and other institutions. A documentary on Cher and her work can be seen in the Netflix series, which, by the way, audience, is an amazing, fun, great series, Abstract, The Art of Design. Welcome, Paula. Okay, so 2020, the pandemic, COVID, Black racism, I mean, it's been quite a year. Uh, what have you been doing during this time period? Well, I moved to my... Um country house in Salisbury, Connecticut, where I do my paintings. And uh, I'm working out of my painting studio and running the design business out of my painting studio. Like I'm on the phone. Uh, I have been seeing my team, part of them, once a week. I'll drive into New York and I spend, you know, about an hour and a half or two hours with them and we can go over work and it moves much faster because you really are communicating as opposed to the sort of artificial form, which is nonsensical. But... Um, in uh, my life, what's happened to me, and, and we can talk about the politics of it later, I just want to talk about the physicality of it, is that everybody's lives have been disrupted in different ways. And some, some people have you know, been isolated and incredibly lonely. Some people have felt marginalized or didn't know what to do with their time. Other people seem to have responded to it better. For me, the thing that surprised me was this disruption of how I balanced myself. I lived in New York City, a very active, both social and professional life. I worked in the city intensely four days a week. I went to Pentagram uh, all four days or was traveling on business or lecturing or doing whatever I was doing. And then on the weekends, my husband, Seymour Cross, and I would come to the country and I would become a painter and I would have Friday where I, I essentially came down from the week. And then Saturday and Sunday, I would I would paint pretty intensely. It was more of an isolated period for me, which was good because the week was intensely social. And we kept it that way. And I, I came to realize because I didn't even wasn't even sure about it when I was doing it that it was a perfect work life balance for me. What's happened as a result of being up here full time, aside from the fact that it takes me longer to do my work because the communication of it is quite terrible. You know, you're trying to talk to your staff about what you mean 
about what something should look like and you're trying to sketch it and they're looking on the screen in a little corner or you're drawing in on some kind of Zoom program or it doesn't work right or you're doing all these things that really are not about eye contact, not about um, understanding an expression of spirit that comes through people engaging with each other in a very personal human way, not through a piece of equipment. And that, that so the translation of what it takes to make something takes that much longer. Mm-hmm. So my days are much longer and meetings are, are longer because half the meeting is about getting everybody in their little box to figure out how to turn on what they're turning on. And sometimes you're talking to a kitty in a little circle and Murray's iPhone and like, what are these things that you're talking to? You know, I mean, it's not a human experience. Right. So that at the end of it, I can't paint. You know, like I've been, my painting has really been cut because the week has been so sapping. And then I'm in the same place on the weekend. I haven't removed myself. I haven't really pulled away from it. And sometimes I stare at a painting and I have, you know, 80% finished on the wall. I'm like, oh, I just can't do it now. Yeah. And I find that incredibly depressing because it talks to me about what's been pulled out of me from being in this situation. And this is me personally. Right. If you want to talk about the condition of the world, both politically and the result of the pandemic, there can't be, in my lifetime, there has never been any condition of our country and, uh, and just our performance against the powers that be that have been more disgusting and more depressing, not the 60s in terms of the Vietnam War. Almost everything I've lived through seems, you know, kind of sweet compared to the Trump administration. You know, like, I mean, this this period of time is the most corrupt period of time. I totally am, you know, on pins and needles about this election because I really genuinely think it's the end of democracy if the, the Democrats can't take office and maybe begin to correct this thing. The country, I've never seen it so marginalized. I feel like I don't want to be citizens with a, with a good half of the population because they repel me. Right. I mean, they just, I don't understand what their morality is. Uh, it isn't, you know, the economy does not exist in a vacuum. All things are related. And, and um, it's, I find it horrific. Um, yeah. And I wish I could say something positive about the future and maybe after November 3rd, I would be able to. But, um, you know, we, there is so much, there's so much that's wrong and there's so much more wrong than I really understood. I think that in relationship to the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I had a soul search to find out what part I play in any form of systemic racism. Now, I, I've i been a teacher at the School of Visual Arts for 37 years. Mm-hmm. And in seven years, I had only four Black students. The two wow. of the Black students I had are, are among the most famous Black students in graphic design right now. And the other two do pretty damn well. Yeah. The question is, why did I have only four students? And it's because right. they don't get three scholarships. Yeah. And so I didn't pay attention. I didn't ask why are there only four black students in 37 years? I mean, you would think I would notice that and ask the guy, just thought, oh, they didn't take my class or oh, you know, they're somewhere else. And right. then I found that um, that the black student population in graphic design is 
And there's a, you know, in a profession that that so many others go into in much greater numbers. And I have to ask, why, why is that? Are they not afforded the opportunity to find out what it is? Are they not seeing? I mean, I can't imagine that a population of young kids don't want to design a logo. Right. Right. Or a record cover. How could that not be? Okay. So what if I said that you were the RBG of the design world? What are your thoughts? Oh, she's amazing. I, that's too much. You know, I mean, she, she is, she is the standard bearer of what we all need to be all the time. You know, right. I mean, just even to think about that makes me too much. This was my, my life lesson about being a woman in business. There was a lot of sexism within the organization. But I never thought of myself as somebody in the record business, where the record business was, was filled with people who saw themselves that way. I saw myself as a designer. And I yeah. took my record album covers, and we entered them in design competitions. And they got in. And I got known. And I got known in spite of the fact I was a woman, because nobody looked at the back and said, oh, Paula, must be a woman. You know, like they, there was a bunch of stuff lying on the table. They voted for it. Yeah. And, and that I saw that and still do as one of the best things about being a designer, because you don't have to look at the person, you look at the object. Yep. That, that can form an impression. So it means that anybody can do this thing. It's not mm-hmm. like you have to be a movie star. You know, yeah. it, it, it's something that's actually achievable if you want to achieve it. So you were talking about a playbook for it. That was the beginning for me of understanding the playbook. I knew I would never succeed if I was in the room and I had to stand up and leave the room and the room was filled with men. I mean, mm-hmm. if I, even to this day, if somebody, if my reputation doesn't perceive me and there are a group of people in the room that I have to lead, I got to make everybody sit down so they don't notice how short I am. <laughs> well, I mean, the things that are physical that, that could put you off have to be overcome by the reputation and capability. Yeah. Where for man, that's not the case. Yeah. This how short are you? Five foot two. No, I'm five two. Has there ever been a salary survey among graphic designers or among designers? And what have you seen for women, black people, et cetera? Women are completely underpaid. They have been for years. There is an AIGA salary survey. It's existed in uh, as long as I've been a member of the AIGA, I think. I mean, I remember looking at it for at least 20 years, maybe maybe 30. Um, it, the amount of women in gra- who enter graphic design who are graphic design students way outnumber men, but the amount of women who have, you know, make successful salaries or re- reach positions of power is, is still... Uh, bigger than it was, but but marginalized. I think what has changed is that I I always thought and this goes back to what was the playbook. My mother was a school teacher, and if she had been born new, she would have been a lawyer. She was a civics teacher, and she was interested in government. And I know that if she was born in the current generation, she would have gone to law school. She was smart, she had good grades, she would have been a lawyer, and. She became a school teacher in, you know, the early 50s because that was the best job a woman could get. And that the reason it was the best job that a woman could get is men were doing something else. And it was determined that women made really good school teachers. Mm-hmm. There was an attitude about it. I wanted to make 
Not so much that women made as much money as men to begin with. My goal was to prove that women could be really good graphic designers. I love it. And therefore, you can hire one because you're going to be, you're going to get a really good graphic designer. As a matter of fact, the head of the CBS Records Art Department actually said, in a straight face, without fearing going to jail, that he always liked to hire women because he got much better work out of them for the money than he would get from from a man. Mm-hmm. Which is really a commission that they made better graphic designers. Right. True for less money underpaid them, but that at least the beginning of that was first you have to believe they can do it, then they gotta begin to demand and grow. And there's a mass of it, the salaries will go up. The problem is that I think that women do better when they have their own businesses than when they're when they're working in in corporations, I believe. I think that the corporation structure of it, though it may be changing considerably makes it tougher for them because they're on hearing levels yeah uh when women start small businesses they may not become as successful or famous as other people other men who start small businesses or gain partnerships or get get financing they do pretty well and they mm-hmm. do a lot of really good uh, women-owned businesses and they do terrific work Mentors and mentorship. So you've said uh, that you've had two mentors, and I'd like to let you tell the audience about those two. In college, I had an incredible teacher who saved my life. Um, He was, uh, I was at Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia, and I had just discovered graphic design the year before, and I I had uh, this teacher, Stanislaw Sigorski, from my junior and senior year, and I decided that that was going to be my major. And he was he was instrumental in two serious ways. He got me to understand typography, which is ironic. I didn't understand that. I, I was in his class to become an illustrator, and he said two words to me when I said I didn't understand how to work with type. He said, illustrate with type. And that that was it. I mean, I've been doing that for the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was it was something very simple in the advice. He had a very thick Polish accent, so it sentence couldn't be much longer than that. <laughs> and then um, I met Seymour, my husband, when I first moved to New York, and he really taught me how to look at things and how to see. Um, right. And I began really becoming observant from the way he observed. And there were little little ways he taught me how to solve specific problems. Like initially, I used to have a lot of trouble with color. And he said, find something you like where you like all the colors and copy them. The combination will never be the same, but it'll be the same colors and power. See how they work in relationship to each other. And he was totally right. Yeah. Um, and that you need you need somebody to give you a few tricks that let, let you take some shortcuts. Yeah. You talk about this ability to see. So he taught you to see. And when you say that, are you talking about see with art, see in design? Or when I talk about it, and this goes back to maybe that's analogy of sick, not sick. I can see like Paul's a good person. She has a good heart. She's actually pivoting her teaching to make a difference now based on, you know, like that ability to see people. Is it the same thing? Because it's also been said of you that you have this intuitive nature regarding people, regarding clients. Is it the same seeing or is it a different seeing? Well, there there are different parts of me. I mean that I and I think I'm I think I'm lucky uh to be able to to have both is that seeing as a designer has to do with seeing form and understanding scale relationships and understanding how colors work together in tandem to be able to make things. Mm-hmm. And, and it's you know I, it's funny that um, 
when I talk to clients about color, whatever color chip I pick is going to be wrong because everybody takes color very personally and they want to look through huge PMS swatch books and find their own color. And my view is if the design works in black and white, you can make, you can make a logo work in any color as long as it can show up. Uh -huh. um, but, but knowing how to do it shortens the process right. and that you, when you know what you know about it, then you have to teach somebody else how to see. And the people you're generally teaching them to see are your clients so that they're capable of seeing the good thing you're going to make for them. When you make it, sometimes they don't see it. So, Ever? Some, some are hopeless. <laughs> but mostly, mostly um, they're not. Mostly they get most of it. And sometimes they actually have inputs that where they're right and it's, they make the work better. How do you mentor? Well, I teach what I know. Um, I mean, I can encourage uh, young people who I talk to all the time about careers, you know, like about how to get in, what to do. You know, like when I, when I give a lecture someplace, there's usually a long line and they're mostly asking me the same questions, which really, how do I get somebody to, to make the design I made? That's always the, the question. It's really, how do I, how do I obtain the power and the influence to be able to make my clients or my bosses or whoever in the corporation you're dealing with understand what I'm doing and appreciate it and want to do it. And right. that, that, that is really the, the question. If you, if you simplify this, how do I get my clients to see? Mm -hmm. Then sometimes they're talking about power struggles within a corporation, which I really understand and that, in certain instances, I know they're working in the wrong place and it's hopeless right? because of the structure of the place. And it's not just because they're women. Right. It's really that in certain kinds of hierarchies, particularly if you're, I remember in my first job, uh, my advertising, I was in the advertising department, CBS, and the ads were routed around and they went to the lowest person in power. And then it went, that's what I call selling up where you're going mm -hmm tiered structure or something's being improved. You can't you can't make anything good happen that way. The only way something happens is if they're out of time and they'll buy anything. Um, I, I know it sounds like I'm being cynical, but but no. that's the truth. And and that when you start to understand modes of behavior and and power structures, you you realize that you may be wasting a lot of years of your life in a certain situation. You're you'd be incapable of changing. Mm-hmm at least at the level you're working. Uh, you can affect change sometimes in the corporation and higher level. I mean, at, at Pentagram, we turn down, if we work for a corporation, we, we tend not to work with middle management because middle management doesn't have the capability of making final decisions. Decisions. Selling up. So why waste your time doing it? Right. Better to work with a smaller company and talk to the president. In 2002, make it bigger. I love this book. You also said, uh, for audience members that may not be familiar, the whole point of graphic design is to bring intelligence, wit, and a higher level of aesthetics to everyday products, the articles of mass culture. Design elevates art for the people, uh, like Shake Shack elevates fast food. So first question, when you go to an airport and you see Shake Shack, are you compelled to buy something or you just kind of smile to yourself? Love it. I have to say, I love it there. I'm so happy that they that they really hold on to the identity. It looks the same everywhere, but it modifies itself to the location. 
It's, I, I, and sometimes I want a hamburger, but generally not before I get on a plane. <laughs> Um, okay, some basic definitions for audience members who may not know the difference. Um, how would you define brand versus design and logo? Well, I don't like the term brand uh, and branding because a mm -hmm. brand is something that is you can't you can influence, but you can't totally have control over because a brand isn't what you make or what the company designs or puts out a brand is that plus the way everybody else perceives it. So it's the amalgamation of all of that together. That's what a brand is. You know, Chipotle was a great brand until there was food poisoning. And then all of a sudden, if you design their logo, you own food poisoning. <laughs> you know, like they, it works like that. These things yeah. come together. I, I say I'm an, I, I'm an identity designer, mm -hmm. uh, which is what I am, uh, that I design visual forms, whether it's typography or icons or the use of a photograph a certain way, I design something that makes something recognized and understood by audiences. And that it can be understood and recognized and then, then you get food poisoning and then you recognize it that way. <laughs> you, don't control, you don't totally control the image. But right. Uh, the word logo comes from logos, which is a Greek word, which uh, I think Aristotle sort of used the word as making an argument for something, you know, in support of something. And it was, it was originally a legal term. And uh, it's probably, the derivation is probably sound. And that, that's essentially what you're doing visually when you design a logo is you're, you're saying, this represents all of this other stuff. There's a story you have shared uh, about a professor at Tyler. Uh, as an aside, I took a walk to North Philly onto the campus of Tyler School of Art in homage and preparation for our chat and walked around. Um, it was probably more beautiful when you attended college because it was in Elkins Park. Nonetheless, uh, Bob Stein, uh, a professor, said something to you that may or may not have been game-changing. Can you share with the audience that story? Uh I, I was terrible at everything in my first two years of Tyler. It, what you had to do as a Tyler student was you had to take all forms of art. So you would take painting and drawing and printmaking and ceramics and sculpture. And I, I, I was pretty bad at all of them. And I took a course in my freshman year that was called basic design. And what it was, was, uh, I, I guess it taught you how to see a little bit. You moved, it was the, it was the uh, Swiss way of teaching introductory design and you took a black square and you moved it around a white page, like an eight and a half by 11 surface. And what you could see and what the exercise was supposed to teach you is how when you move the square in different positions, it breaks up the space around it. So you're, you're sort of learning scale and proportion a little bit. And you had, a, you had a position this black square. And in those days, you know, you, you weren't doing this on a computer. You had a, you cut out a black square and you used rubber cement. And you, I think there was one coat even in those days, but you, you generally did it with two coats. So you put the little square down on the piece of paper. And if you weren't neat, little rubber cement edges would come out. You'd have to take them off with a rubber cement pickup. And that sometimes would fray the corner, so it wasn't particularly sharp. Now, I was a pig, 
I mean, everything, everything I touched was sloppy and messy and terrible. And I remember that Bob Stein just had no patience for me whatsoever because I really failed at all these little applications and exercises he set up for us. And when he, when it was my review period, he said, um, why are you here? Why are you in art school? And I said, well, I want to be an artist. And he said, cooking is an art. True quote. Right. And that just like, oh, it just gets you in the heart. When you get into the, the sort of feminist discussion about what happens to us in our professions, and I think that I do have sympathy for men in a lot of respects, in that they were raised that way. <laughs> they were raised to, to behave like that. I don't think they were, they're inherently a bad sex. I think they had bad training. And I think that, that they, they can bit by bit come to accept. And I do think that we make strides. And I think that anger isn't helpful because you're just angry. I think that Figuring out why they're like that. I mean, if you go back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, she saw some of the things in the Me Too movement and she admitted in her youth that would not have upset her because she would say boys will be boys, you know, which mm -hmm. is, is, you know, excusing really phenomenal behavior, but out of what generation and at what time and, you know, where are they now? My husband can't make anything. And everybody, all the men who work for me are terrific cooks. Okay, Paula, pivot health design and health design projects. So health design, uh, quite simply, is patient-centered uh, design. Uh, we're approaching with a creative, innovative, open mindset. Uh, some projects I've come across that I've considered a health design that you've been a part of, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. The Mental Health Coalition, Square Peg Round Hole, pe Period Equity, and Planned Parenthood. I'm not sure if you actually consider that health design, but certainly environmental graphics. So can you discuss each of those and your thoughts? Um, yeah, they're all projects I really like. Um, Planned Parenthood was interesting because I really had to um, solve a problem for the organization, which was that they were moving into a new headquarters and they wanted a way to, a way to convey their, their spirit and history, but there's so much of their history they don't want to talk about. Like they don't want to talk about Margaret Sanger um, because of her you know, eugenics, you know, it's not a, exactly a great, a great thing to be celebrating her. On the other hand, she didn't invent birth control. So how do you deal with that dichotomy? Exactly. So, so the person was flawed, but the notion that women should be able to get contraception is, you know, saves a lot of lives and, and, and made women capable of being able to, you know, live their lives with a choice of not just being stay-at-home mothers and, and endlessly breeding, but being able to, to carry on other fulfilling parts of their lives. So she was, she, on the one hand, she's a horrible racist, but on the other hand, she's a humanist, depending upon how you look at it. So what I essentially had to do with the project, because we did want to convey, you know, sort of the women's movement aspect of it, um, the fact that contraception is a hero. And, and we did that by um, creating this crazy wall mural that went up the steps that had a montage of um, 
you know, giant prophylactics hanging from the ceiling and, and birth control pills on the on a wall and hot pink and and women in the movement cut out. And the, the thing had dimensions. You went up the stairs, you'd have to see it to know what I'm describing. But what you could see, it erased her and made it about the spirit of what was achieved, because that's what Planned Parenthood is about. You know, so I mean it's it's sort of rough when you can't put your you can't you know, make an homage to your founder. And so how do you how do you sort of hold on to what's good about the organization? So right. that, that solution came out of that problem. Uh, period equity I named. I love it. I love it. There was a, a, a Lisa, uh, Laura Straussfeld, who's the, the twin sister of my former partner, Lisa Straussfeld. She was a, Lisa was at Pentagram for about 10 years. And, and Laura came over with this project she was working on with a, with a lawyer. And um, it was the notion that they're trying to change the laws in, in, in states to um, stop taxing things like tampons. Like there's no, there's no tax for prophylactics, but a tampon, all women to pay a tax on it. And they're not in bathrooms. You know, like if you go to a public restroom, they're not there. I mean, like what? This, this is the big sex we have here. You know, like we're more than 50% of the population. Be nice. You know, how hard is that? So they had this really terrible name. This is one of the worst names I've ever heard. They were calling themselves menstrual equality. Mm. Thought, oh, no, no. Nobody wants to get behind that. <laughs> so we called it period equity. And, you know, that if you didn't know what it was, it could sound like a like a, a financial organization. Um, but you know, there were these big red circles that we used in the identity, and thing became very pop, and and they've been successful, and I, I think that's great. I mean, I, I love that about it. And then the uh, the third one, um, the Mental Health Coalition, uh, was a was a pet project of Kenneth Cole, um, and. He wanted to take the stigma off mental illness. And, you know, we, I was working with him pre-COVID. We had no idea when we started working on this, how relevant this thing was going to become. Yeah. And originally we had a, a line that we'd agreed on instead of, because there was a mental health coalition, but they hadn't signed on to this identity. So he was really making an ad campaign. And the ad campaign was going to say, there is no normal. That you know that normal behavior is in the eye of the beholder to a degree, and and that he wanted to destigmatize it because a lot of people don't want to come forward and get the help they need because they feel like they're not normal, right? So that this was very important. So that's where the square peg and the round hole came. Okay, Ellen Lupton says that we make design decisions all the time, and actually waking up in the morning and making your bed is a design decision. What are some, isn't that great? I'm like, every time now when I wake up, I, I make my bed. I'm like, I've just made a design decision. Uh, what are some of the design decisions you make when you start your day? Well, there's the bed. <laughs> the bed is good. Um, I think the biggest design decision I make in the morning is, and I don't make it every day because I get lazy, is I decide to not have five pairs of shoes near my bed. You know, like I actually make a determined decision to pick up the shoes and stick them in the closet which I uh -huh. should have the night before, but I'm too lazy because I can't come up and put them on the floor. Um, I have a specific order of how I go into the kitchen and make my coffee and feed the dog. That That is is very serious. There is a, a dishwasher filled with dishes and I need to 
make the coffee and have, I, I use a, a, a French press. So I have the, the kettle on the stove and the French press has to come out of the dishwasher because it's in there from the day before. So I have to unload all the dishes while the coffee boils. If the coffee boils before, then I have to turn it off because I want to have all the dishes put away before I do the coffee because it's an aesthetic choice. Like I don't want to make the coffee and then spill grounds and have the clean dishes nearby. So that this is, this is very serious and I do not want this activity disrupted. It's very serious and it's not solemn. It's serious. You've said, I've never been interested in technology. I'm interested in people. So in your lifetime, the world has changed. Computers, flip phones, smartphones, Adobe. And I'm wondering how you feel you've navigated technology um, in terms of your work. Uh, have you found it difficult uh, or what was pretty easy and seamless? I think I was lucky to be an established designer before everything became computerized because I went through these, these phases of typography with different forms of technology. There was originally handset type and, and uh, wood type. And then there was this era of photo typography that was actually really terrible. Um, and then when the computer was introduced to a very limited typefaces um, that were digitized, so you still had to work with your hand if you wanted to do anything interesting. And I, I, come to see the great aspects of technology and the limitations of it in relationship to its time. For example, right now is the best period of typo typographic design, largely because of what the software can do and the talent that's working with it have overcome hurdles from bad periods of technology and also limited understanding of how to draw a type. So relying on the type technology too much instead of seeing. So that you see things come together with technology and your ability to see. For me, the, all the environmental graphic work I'm doing would be impossible without the computer. I mean, because I can see, right now I'm working on um, uh, these two uh, bus shelters across the street from each other in a place in Korea called Langchu where they have a, a Biennale and it's an invitational thing. And I'm designing these things. And, you know, we can realize them the way I want them to look uh, because of the software. And you would never be able to do that. It would take hours and hours. And I really marvel at architects who worked before before this kind of software equipment existed. And it's like, my God, how hard right. is it? Uh, so, you know, like I had that relationship to it, but I'm not an operator. And part of the reason I hate my working situation during COVID is just because I have to actually... Use technology. And I have to set up the presentations and stick them up. I hate it. I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to. Fair. In 2008, you gave a TED Talk entitled Serious Play. Great design is serious, not solemn. And I love this uh, distinction. Uh, you read and actually gave some comparisons of like Washington, D.C. is solemn. New York City is serious. And so I was wondering if we could play a serious, solemn game. Okay, that was from an essay by a terrific writer from the Times named Russell Baker. Yes. I thought he had really described that that analogy worked for lots of things. And, and it, it just really, it always stayed with me. So uh, Risa is serious, not solemn. What's Paula? Oh, I'm, I'm serious. Totally, totally. Um, avocado toast versus guacamole. Oh, guacamole is 
series. And I really like this importance audience. You're like, what are they doing? What is Risa talking about? So the concept is children play. I think people forget that actually adults play. Adults need to play. And when you're in a state of play, you're best able to create. You're best able to think. You're best uh, able to keep things open. And Paul, you've made some of these distinctions about some of the fun projects versus some of the projects that became a little bit more mundane. So, um, and you've actually, I think, made the argument that the time that something becomes solemn might be the time to pivot. Can you give other examples that for you invoke the concept and the thought of play? Play is magical. Um, you know, if, you, if you're playing a game, it has rules and their parameters, but within those parameters, you can succeed or fail if you know the rules. And that Sometimes when you fail, it's better than when you succeed because you gain something from it. You gain knowledge. And that, that's really making mistakes. And making mistakes and failing is a very important part of making things. So as a maker, I need that. And that is serious behavior. Solemn behavior is covering up your mistakes and not looking at them and denying that they're existing even. You know that that's that that's very solemn. You know somebody somebody who who does not appreciate what happens in the struggle is denying the whole point mm -hmm. of the exercise. Solomon sure. so Baker made it meant it really had to do with you know following prescribed behaviors. You know, like going to church every Sunday is solemn. You can still be religious. Right. Right. So you've said that you hope that perhaps you have yet to make your best work. And you're always thinking, what can I make next? Yeah. So what's next for Paula Scher? Right now, actually, there is something next. Um, a collector in Munich is, has sent me a Porsche to paint. And uh, That is serious. So, that was, that's a serious condition. That's serious. It's in the shop right now having the chrome and stuff taken over so I can paint it in my basement. And I'm going to paint it in the basement, not in my studio, so I won't feel like I'm in the same place. So that's, that's what I'm waiting for. That's fantastic. And then another sort of on the horizon serious project. Do you want to talk a little bit about your mentor work and your teaching? I talked about my experience in discovering how how small the black enrollment is in graphic design in the major art schools. But the, the problem is that the major art schools in New York City don't give scholarships for design. So uh, the amount of students who are entering the field either don't have the money or don't even know that it's something available to them. So at, at uh, CCNY, the City College um, uptown, they do have a graphic design department um, and it's quite large and it's very diverse. So uh, I'm going to put together a program which we will announce, which will be three classes, 10 people in each class and two of my partners, Emily Oberman and Natasha Gann are gonna teach with me and it'll be a Pentagram scholarship program. I always taught one night a week at Pentagram and I taught kids from SVA and now it'll be kids from CCNY. And our hope is that we um, get some talented kids, that they can intern at Pentagram or other comparable places and that we launch some careers. Wonderful. 
Polish hair, thank you so much for spending time with me. And I can't wait to see that Porsche. <laughs> Neither can I. It's wild. This is Dr. Risa E. Lewis for the Visible Voices podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com, where you can read more about my guests in the show notes and read the blog pieces which may accompany the episode. Thank you to the production team, Tomify Pratts, Stacey Gitlin, and Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.